Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish Podcast, Key Considerations in Gene Therapy Manufacturing for Commercialization, a panel discussion. I'm Brandi Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Today, instead of an interview, we have the recording from the panel discussion that I moderated at this year's Cell and Gene Therapy Bioprocessing and Commercialization Conference. The discussion covers the latest in gene therapy manufacturing strategies, analytical analysis, cost of goods, and key regulatory considerations. Thank you for listening. So I want to thank you for um, coming today, and I also want to thank Sarah and the conference organizers for asking us to put on this panel discussion. We're really excited about it. I wanted to start with just a brief explanation of how this panel came to be. And it really started uh, at Cell Culture Dish, we realized that there was an opportunity to provide a greater resource on gene therapy manufacturing than what we had been providing, which was the occasional article here and there. And so we assembled a group of experts, um, which you'll see several of them up on the stage behind me, um, all from different companies with different levels of expertise and areas of expertise and different perspectives on gene therapy manufacturing. And we pulled all this experience and put together an ebook where we addressed kind of some of the key areas that we felt were important uh, when looking at gene therapy manufacturing for commercialization. And most of the authors are represented here on the panel. And so what I'd like to do now is just ask our panel members to introduce themselves, and then we can get started with some questions. So Clive, if you'd like to get started. Thanks, Brandy. So uh, my name is Clive Glover from Paul Biotech. So at Paul, we're a supplier of equipment um, for the manufacture of multiple uh, therapeutics, but we have a particular focus on um, the gene therapy side of things and viral vector manufacturing. Um, and are looking. We, we have a variety of equipment and are looking to develop further in the space. Thank you. My name is Pratik Jaluria. I'm the head of the process development and manufacturing team at Adverum Biotechnologies. The company focuses on recombinant AAV gene therapy products, and I'm happy to contribute to this panel. Hi, I'm Tracy Tridenic. I'm the founding partner and head of regulatory quality for Biotechlogic. We're a consulting firm that provides CMC and manufacturing consulting to gene and cell therapy products. Hi, I'm Joe Hughes uh, from Wuxi Aptech. I am the chief scientist and the VP for process development and analytic development. So we help bring projects into, into Wuxi. Um, I'm based in Philadelphia and we have a almost 300,000 square feet of uh, lab space uh, for the analytics as well as a lot of manufacturing for autologous and allogeneic cell therapy as well as we uh, make vectors and have a number of platforms for Lenti, ADNO, and NAAV. And I'm Nina Forsberg from Vironova. Vironova is a company that focuses on electron microscopy-based analytics. And the company was founded by virologists from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. So all our applications basically are geared towards viruses, VLPs, and gene therapy vectors for purity, percentage full capsids, and thickness, morphology, and all those uh, source of issues. 
Hi, I'm Ross Rahul. I'm with Beckman Coulter Life Sciences. Uh, at Beckman, we have a variety of life science uh, product solutions, flow cytometers, automation to centrifugation, which is the area that I am uh, in as a senior application scientist uh, in working with uh, viral vector uh, analytics with AUC, as well as on the preparative side with ultracentrifuges and the like. Good morning. I'm John Madsen. I'm head of process development operations for Fujifilm Biosynth Biotechnologies, Texas, that's located in College Station, Texas, home of the Texas A&M Aggies. Um, our company uh, brings processes in from anywhere from a vial and two scientific papers to a fully phase three compliant process. So we provide full service analytics in manufacturing for gene therapy. And unfortunately, today we just don't have the time to get into too many of the details of what we covered in the ebook, but I encourage you to go and download it if you'd like. It was published this week and it's available at Cell Culture Dish forward slash gene therapy book. Um, with that, I wanted to start with a question um, and then I'll open it up to audience questions. We asked our readers to submit questions this week and one of the questions that I thought was a great way to start off this panel discussion was where do you see key opportunities for improvement in gene therapy manufacturing? And I'll let Clive, would you like to start and then we'll go down the row? Excellent. Thanks, Randy. Um, yeah, so clearly there's an enormous need for innovation uh, around the manufacture of viral vectors. Um, I think we see a lot of uh, issues, and I'll leave it to the rest of the, uh, the panel members to also uh, answer on this one, but I think one of the key considerations around this is on scale. Um, and how do we simply make enough viral vectors for the uh, particular indications that we're looking at? Uh, and obviously what is uh, primarily determining the scale is the amount of titer that you're able to get from the upstream side of the process. Um, so I think looking at more consistent uh, ways of generating more out of the upstream side of the process is something that's very important. Uh, clearly making stable cell lines is a significant challenge in this space. Uh, there are some stable cell lines that are available for lentivirus, but I think um, there's definitely some innovation uh, that's required on the AAV side of things. But I, I really think that uh, enabling stable cell lines for AAV production is probably going to be one of the major things that solves the scale, of, scale side of things on the, on the upstream side. Yeah, so I would agree with that generally. I think there's yield is always an issue from a process perspective, trying to maximize yield. The other area, I think that there's some benefit and uh, opportunities for us to uh, be innovative is around the analytics. So thinking more about the in-process analytics, if you think of traditional biologics, which I call traditional biologics, uh, antibodies, fusion proteins, enzyme replacement therapies, there's a whole host of different technologies that are out there for people to evaluate processes, in-process testing to be done. I think the, our industry is just starting to realize the potential that's there for HPLC, uh, all sorts of isoelectric focusing, things like that, not just relying on gels or qPCR or something like that. So that's, I think, another opportunity for the field to move in. I'm going to let the manufacturing people talk about this, so I'm going to pass. All right. Um, so I agree with the, the first two. Uh, you know, I think those are really important things. I want to also maybe um, differentiate when we see customers very often, they're, they're a lot in the early stages, and I think their issues are a little different from the later stages. And I think very often, you know, people want to go first 
into the clinic as quickly as they can. And so I think the issues there are how do you make enough and purify to a reasonable level and, and move that quickly. So I think there's, there's a lot of uh, need, I think, for, for platforms and, and how do you bring, uh, you know, the cells and, and the media and all the components that may up increase your, your dose, but also how do you purify that? Um, you know, AAVs, all the different serotypes are a great challenge right now to how do you have a downstream that can be a platform or can we create some affinity uh, uh, resins or other ways to actually have these, you know, 80% clean and that's probably enough for phase one. And then as you get further into commercial, then we have customers now, now where you really have to push the scale. And I think that's, that's an important, but probably a, a different kind of, of focus. And then you need a lot more process development and uh, looking at the critical parameters that are there. But I think, um, you know, we see customers in both sides of it, although it's really the early stage and, and how do we move them quickly. I think that was a good answer, and I agree with that. Uh, what we see in Vironova is exactly that trend that uh, uh, in the last years, uh, our customers have moved from being in early stage, and the only question they had whether their capsid had DNA or not, if they were full or empty. But now, since they're moving into the more commercial phase, and they need to do the process development, that they need to scale up, they uh, envision a lot of problems that they uh, didn't uh, realize when they scale up upstream, and uh, they don't know whether the problems arise from capsids that have misassembled, or is it the host cell contaminants, and they need to monitor that purity much more closely. And we get a lot more requests there, and we see quantitative uh, data for that, but as well as seeing what you actually have in your sample is quite important. Uh, I definitely agree with uh, what's been said uh, so far by, with these previous responses. Um, adding on to that, I think because we're at a stage where we have lots of uh, advanced technologies for both the purification and the analytics, I think that opens the door to really understanding what the different components are doing in a, in a production from a biological source um, to really understand you know, what level of purity is actually needed and how that can drive what sort of purification technologies are needed when you're scaling up and at early stages as well. I, I think we're at the, that kind of a point now that we can use the, the information on some of those analytic processes to really drive what purity is needed and how, how we can go about achieving that purity level at whatever scale you're at. Uh, being last in line, I'm forced to agree with what's been said before. Um, in, in my company, we look at sort of the holistic picture. I think a way to save time and to be more efficient is upfront understand what you don't understand. So uh, the most difficult people we deal with are the ones who don't understand or don't know what they don't know. So examples of that are good tech transfer, good understanding of your uh, critical raw materials. Have they been tested? Have they been NGS tested? Um, is there sterility? Do you have um, control over your passage number? So all of these things can stop you dead in, in phase one. So I think um, getting off to a good start, and I agree very much with the platforming. We are actually working on upstream platforming ourselves, but downstream as well. AAV, there are multiple affinity um, reagents out there, but um, 
One thing that's interesting in my company, I'm sort of like the FDA. I've seen probably 60 or 70 different processes, and I know what works and what doesn't work. So uh, we add a lot of value to people coming into the company by saying, probably don't want to do an ultra centrifuge for a seven mil you know, sample. Um, so um, I think getting the tech transfer understood and well on its way in a realistic fashion will get you much faster to phase one. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. Hi, good morning. Linda Kelly from Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, I heard the panelists speak a lot about uh, viral, the challenges with viral production, but I wondered if they would speak about where we see the future for using viruses uh, to modify uh, the genome of cells. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll speak of some customers that we have right now that are pursuing um, AAV as a, as a way to uh, introduce, you know, a CRISPR-like molecule or, you know, similar things like that. And um, I would say a number of people are going off after the, almost the same thing, uh, particularly with that. Um, so we see that as a, as a pretty large growth area. Um, I, I think we also have uh, also entertained other uh, gene or cell therapies, basically, that are using other kinds of molecules that are more uh, using electroporation to introduce uh, nucleic acid or, you know, other kind of molecules. So um, I see both things happening, and um, we're agnostic as far as, you know, which one is going to work. Uh, but, you know, I think it's really data-driven, and I think if you can do it uh, non-viral or viral, I think uh, you're going to pursue that. It seems viral seems to be a little bit more uh, efficient at it right now, but um, I think the field will come up with uh, changes in the, in the near future, too. Uh, my name is Saeed from Sangamo Therapeutics. Uh, this is uh, uh, directed to uh, the second panelist, Pratik. Yeah. Uh, Pratik, uh, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned that the in-process analytics should be the key area of uh, uh, you know, going ahead. Uh, in terms of uh, scalability, we found that uh, HEC, uh, 293 has a problem with the scalability. Could you elaborate on how improving on the analytics could improve our scalability? Or is something that I'm missing? Yeah, so I'm thinking of analytics more from a process understanding perspective rather than a scalability perspective. I think they go hand in hand. Uh, at, at Verum, we have both the SF9 baculovirus production systems as well as 293. Right now, the baculovirus SF9 system seems to be more productive on a per-cell basis, so we're relying on that for clinical-grade material, but we still have the 293 system uh, triple transfection process that we're trying to modify. The analytics that I was talking about were more along, along the lines of understanding, do you really have an understanding, again, for the SF9 baculovirus system, do you have an understanding of what your MOI really should be when you're doing uh, co-infections? Is there a range there? Uh, what do you track when you're looking at cell viability, for example, when you're showing infectious particles? Those are things where we have some level of understanding, but we can improve upon that. 
typically we're only looking at, or many companies are only looking at QPCR, so we're looking at the tighter or, along different process steps. We should be able to augment that with other technologies to help us understand how the process performs, where their sensitivities for the process, and as we learn more about their process, especially if it's a platform process, it allows us to scale it more, right? So we've gone away from ultra centrifugation, even though we have that capacity internally, we've replaced it with chromatography, knowing that it's a scalable process, we can handle much larger volumes. So understanding what the sensitivities are there, if you're talking about a chromatography step, for example, what's the conductivity range that you know your processes uh, can perform in? What's the yield variation that you see? What impurities do you remove? Those are things that we're concerned about. Thank you. Maybe I can just build on that as well to, to say that certainly our experience internally, actually particularly looking at chromatography, is just because of the quality of the analytics involved, uh, you know, which with the noise level and with the accuracy involved, it's very difficult to actually do any kind of optimization of any of those particular steps. So, you know, if you're looking for, say, a 10 to 15% improvement in one of the particular downstream steps, but your analytics has got a, a variability level of 20 to 30% or even higher, or actually some cases 100%, it becomes very difficult to really look for those small incremental improvements, which when they add up can make a significant difference uh, overall. So um, I think the analytics around the process side of things is very important. If I could add a comment about the, the 293 cells, I think, um, you know, I think there was an issue discussed uh, by the FDA last year around using 293 T cells, uh, which they had an issue for people using that to produce AAV. Uh, AAV is, is very good at putting DNA into its capsid, but sometimes it just takes host cell uh, DNA, and so there was an issue of whether it was um, also encapsidating and, and bringing the T antigen uh, gene uh, along with it. So basically you need to select cells. If you have both the 293 for AAV, you can avoid that problem, but you still need to actually look for uh, whether it's picked up things from the HEC uh, cells, uh, which can be an issue. So, and we have a we have a large analog program that also looks at residual DNA, and you can look not only at the percent uh, as well as the sizing of it. So I think that's an issue. Uh, and for the lentes, that's where we do use the T, but it becomes much less of an issue uh, because there doesn't seem to be much packaging of of actual DNA into into the uh, into the lentes. Uh, thank you very much. Very interesting discussion. Uh, I'm Parrish Gallagher from GE Healthcare. So I have a question for the panel regarding, um, well, first of all, the, the discussion seems to be around the technical issues in manufacturing the product as well as the cycle time. What about, what about cost of manufacturing, cost of goods? Is that an issue yet uh, or is it just fallen by, is it in the background and is it, is it to come later? So that's question number, number one. Number two is, um, what sort of profit margins are envisioned for these products uh, that are costing three to five hundred thousand dollars per dose? And is there and how much pressure are you are you getting as a result on cost of goods? Let's start with question one. It's it's a, definitely an issue, um, you know. And I think we're in a lot of plastics. Typically, if you're in adherent cells, um, you know, going to bioreactors can significantly bring that down. Um, people that are trying to get into phase one typically 
just want to get there quickly and it's not as much of an issue, but certainly as you get into phase two and beyond, it, it's a very critical thing. Anybody else want to add? Oh. Yeah, I, I was thinking um, um, manufacturing cost is one thing, but process development time is another issue. If you can shorten that time by knowing exactly what you have in your sample, your profile, um, what kind of contaminants you, uh, you have there and monitor the, the process quite closely, you would be able to find the right parameters much sooner. And I think the analytical tools are sort of there to help and maybe need to prove themselves a little bit. But um, I think there we have an opportunity to save a lot of costs if, if you get that set. Yeah, so it's a, good, it's a good question. It's one that I think a lot of companies try to struggle, will struggle with trying to understand where they are. In terms of cost of goods analysis, I think a number of people have done it before. There's published papers that look at what uh, a gene therapy product might look like from a cost of goods perspective and what the uh, reimbursement might look like and what that structure might look like. For, for us, we've looked at scalability primarily around trying to cut cost of goods, recognizing that scale, um, economies of scale actually helps you when you get to uh, the cost of good per dose for a patient. Uh, if you compare traditional biologics, and I'm sure there's a number of people in here that have that same experience, typically you're hoping for the cost of goods to be under 10%, right? somewhere in the 8, 5 to 10%, but you're hoping it's under 10. I think for gene therapy products right now, uh, they would love to be in that, in that same range. I don't think that that's really where they are. Uh, I think gene therapy products and maybe cell therapy products as well, the cost of goods are much higher. And so the real question is re around reimbursement and where that might be relative to cost of goods. Uh, going back to the yield question that we were talking about before, that's one key area to help lower the cost of goods. Obviously, scale is another factor that goes into it. If you can build any inventory, as one of the earlier speakers talked about, especially for viral vectors, that also helps you with the cost of goods perspective. So I don't have a great answer for you, but uh, we're, we're toying with that and trying to understand where we need to be from a cost of goods perspective. Uh, it's still something that's an active uh, discussion point for a lot of companies. So process intensification, process closure. Um, when you close a process, um, you're using much less labor. Um, you try to connect it, so that saves a lot of money. Um, using the single use, which Parrish is obviously one of the inventors of, um, it works very well in that uh, situation. Um, process closure, um, you can do end-to-end -end processing with much less labor, much lower cost. Um, if you platform the processes, you're not having to reinvent the process for every vector that comes in both upstream and downstream. And then one thing also I'd like to mention is that um, specific productivity of the cell type is very important. People want to build more facilities, run more columns, make more cells, but if, if your single cell can make five to ten times more material at the start, you're going to have a much more efficient process. And there are some th technologies going on that we're looking at that can in increase a specific productivity of the cell itself, you know, five to tenfold. So very good question. Hi, uh, my name is Matt Gim from Samsung Biologics. So thank you for sharing your insight on what needs to be tackled in order to reduce the cost. But knowing that there is tremendous political pressure and also the, the potential to cure a disease, how do you approach the, the cost and the pricing issue? I, I can start with that. So I think one of the ways to look at it is just as you described it, it's a it's not chronic treatment of a disease, it's rather a cure, right? That's, I think, 
part of the perspective, and it has to do with education of not just payers, but also patients, patient advocacy groups, to understand that the potential is there for any one of these treatments to reverse the disease progression uh, and actually return patients back to a normal state, normal healthy state. So I think that's part of the discussion that has to be included in discussion of cost of goods and, and pricing. Uh, overall, I think there's still, you're right, there is political pressure for prices to come down, but I think there, the industry can do a better job perhaps of conveying where those costs come from. The, the analogy I give uh, students when I go to talk to college students or high school students is that if you have a great idea today, let's say for a new app, you can have that app produced in a couple of weeks and have it on the market, and hopefully if it's uh, on the Apple store or the app store, you can actually make some profit off of it. If you have an idea for a new drug or a new treatment, you're talking about seven, eight, ten years later where you have highly educated, highly trained people touching it at every instance, right? You have doctors, medical doctors, PhDs, you have uh, scientists, preclinical folks touching it all along the way to get it to first demonstrate safety, then efficacy. So the cost associated with bringing one of those products forward is much greater than if you had an idea for a new app. So when I explain it that way, I think it resonates with people, and I think that's what we can do as an industry to communicate where the cost structure would come from. You know, I think uh, w one of the other things, and I, I talked about this early stage, is um, it's probably going to be the most expensive. But as we move to commercial products, uh, we learn a lot. Um, you know, we have customers that have gone through, you know, and, and they have good clinical data to get started in early stages, but they have gone through four different iterations, and now actually their their time is half the time it was, um, and the materials are actually have gone down, and the raw materials, uh, so we've gotten better sources on that. So we're constantly looking uh, for ways to, what, whatever we can implement that will uh, get a better price and and for them and, and the end of it. So I think both, uh, you know, as a CMO or CDMO, uh, we're looking for that, but also the customer is constantly looking, where can I take things off of this, even as it moves forward? And, and I see that both in the autologous world, but allogeneic. So we have a number of people that are looking at allogeneic, uh, cell therapies and and clearly that is you know having an off-the-shelf product is going to be a lot less expensive uh, hopefully it is as efficient as the autologous but you know I think that's that's to be seen and I think that's that's kind of improvements that both our customers and, and large companies mid-sized companies are looking at uh, as well as the uh, the manufacturers Hi, I'm April Stanley from Cytovance Biologics. Uh, to follow along with the cost of goods conversation, has anyone compared the cost of goods for a single dose gene therapy cure, as you mentioned, versus, say, a chronic treatment, um, a monoclonal lifetime treatment, or a very long um, chemotherapy trial? We're we looking at twofold, tenfold, a thousandfold more expensive, or is it going to play out over the course of their lifetime to be in the ballpark of what they would have paid anyway? Sure. Uh, so I, I'm not aware of any formal, I mean, I've seen some presentations on cost of goods analysis that people have done comparing chronic dosing uh, or maybe even acute dosing if you're talking about a specific disease or infection and comparing that to gene therapy. Uh, but what I can say is that kind of generally speaking, if you use the, the general rule of thumb 
that uh, let's say a monoclonal antibody that's that you're going to be administering to a patient for their remainder of their lives, that's typically the cost of goods there is about 10%, somewhere around 10%. And so you can do the math very easily. If you assume that um, that's a, it's running at commercial scale and you make some assumptions about the dosing, you know, make some assumptions around 10 mg per kg or something like that as a, as a baseline, you can probably calculate what the cost is for lifetime treatment of that patient, which I anticipate, just as I'm thinking about the numbers, would be much greater than a single dose uh, gene therapy treatment. So, but I haven't seen that comparison done uh, or presented in detail. So, yeah, uh, another example, again, I'm not the expert on this, but I have seen uh, comparisons around hemophilia, where I believe it costs around $350,000 to $500,000 a year to um, do infusions of, of patients with hemophilia. So you can imagine that a gene therapy, you know, if the price of that gene therapy comes in at about a million dollars, that's basically two years worth of, of, um, of treatment. So you can do the, the appropriate calculations to look at the cost of goods there. Now, again, qualification, it's, far, far, it's not my expertise, but those are the sort of numbers that I've seen around. And I think we're almost out of time, but I did want to mention that the panel members will be available for a few minutes into the net networking uh, break, and also you can find them at their respective booths. Um, I wanted to close with one question uh, that was submitted that I thought was a nice way to end the discussion, um, and that was, um, what advice would you have for gene therapy companies who are entering the clinical manufacturing phase of development? Uh, John, do you want to start? Uh, yes, as I said, um, learn as much as you can, as fast as you can. Uh, the quicker you can get to your manufacturing people, uh, the better, so you can uh, prevent issues happening down the road. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump on and agree with that. The, the quick answer uh, or guidance I would give is to figure out what levels of purity you need, what your kind of critical parameters are that you need to hit, and focus on addressing those up front and early on so you don't run into problems later on in the process or when you're scaling up. Yeah, um, definitely, I agree to that. Um, to add uh, to that, I think there are a lot of options there. Somebody said in a previous talk here that the analytics market that addresses gene therapy is still young and there are many out there. I think the best advice I can give is to test and make feasibility studies and see what works for you because there are a lot of um, us there that are willing to, to work with your samples and, sh and uh, learn together with you. Um, so the advice I would give would be to decide as quickly as you can how much improvement you want to make, both in the process or do you want to leave your process alone and just have it as a tech transfer and, and move quickly. So very often people you know, need to decide quickly uh, do I need to close this down? Do I need to make other improvements? And also on the analytic side, um, you know, hopefully you have thought about, and usually it's the potency assays or the gene expression assays that are not fully developed. Uh, you know, the more um, developed assays that you can come in with, uh, the better off you are. Um, I wish Janet was here, but I saw that she left from ARM. I think one of the, the biggest um, things that you've heard that I would recommend is creating a material utilization and prioritization plan. That's something we're putting together these days where we're allocating and defining the type of materials that you need, especially when you're starting these clinical trials. Obviously, clinical material, you need 
for the clinic, but there's also now a lot of push on in-use compatibility being done early. Um, when you do um, forced degradation, uh, we're seeing a lot of these happening as post-approval commitment, even process validation lots being post-approval commitments, some of them. So it's, it's putting this overall plan together on how you're going to utilize the material. Uh, I would say two things. One would be to invest, if you can, invest in a platform process or at least the framework of a platform process. The second would be to consider starting a network. So if you're outsourcing your manufacturing, to think about establishing a network. It could be a small network, it could be a network of two or three, but to think about doing it that way. So as you build relationships with some of these contract manufacturing organizations, you can find which team works best with your platform or your technology, and that may be a partnership that could be developed uh, long term. Yeah, what do I, what, what extra do I add to all of this? Um, so yeah, the one, maybe one extra piece I'd say is anticipate your scale early. So do the, the calculation on what scale you anticipate you're going to need right at the very beginning and ensure that technologies that are able to meet that scale, that, that you start working with those technologies as early as possible in the, in the development with the other considerations that have been already talked about is how much do you actually want to change and those sorts of things there. But yeah, anticipating scale is, is what I would say is, uh, is another consideration and all that. And I would just add on to that, in addition to developing your network with a CDMO or uh, perhaps others, um, having a good relationship with your suppliers is really important. That was something that came up several times in the ebook, that um, you, leveraging their experience and their knowledge of their systems can be really beneficial. And so keep them in mind as part of, part of your network too. Thank you all very much.